Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 9th of July, 2020, and my interview today is with Catherine E. Semser, a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. Most of her work there focuses on rights and market-based solutions to policy challenges in environmental security, conservation finance, and sustainability. This really is a deep dive into the cogs which make conservation work. And by cogs, I mean, how do we fund conservation? We look at the interplay between private and public land ownership, how these models work, and the complexities of migration corridors cutting through different land uses, an issue that we are also dealing with in deer management right now in the UK. We go on to discuss incentivizing conservation in the public good and how important knowledge exchange is between countries. Towards the middle of the show, we dig into the global wildlife trade and what we mean by that, and how harnessing regulated trade can help address social inequality and help prevent viral spillovers into humans. We touch on carbon credits, clean water initiatives, and the consequences of potential new regulations on wildlife products in California. One point of extra information for the show that I need to just add here is that I asked Catherine about funding mechanisms for the economic shortfall in national parks and publicly owned land in the US. She talks at length about solutions in the show, but our conversation occurred before the Senate passed the Great American Outdoors Act, which would establish permanent funding of $900 million a year for the Land and Water Fund and create a National Parks and Public Lands Legacy Fund directing up to $9.5 billion over five years to address priority repairs in national parks and other public lands. This act has yet to be enacted, more information can be found on the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership website. Two weeks ago, I asked you all to tag me in a post somewhere on social media uh, or send me an email and show me how are you listening to this show. A heap of you did that, and a winner picked at random was chosen. Ben Greaves tagged me in a picture of his sink washing his dishes. A fine way to consume the podcast. So well done, Ben. Contact me, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and I will send you out a copy of Modern Huntsman. Of course, Modern Huntsman are our partners on the podcast, helping make it possible for me to interview interesting and smart people around complicated and crucial topics. You can read more about the team and the publication at www.modernhuntsman.com, where Volume 5, The Traditions Issue, is now shipping. They should be landing in the UK next week with any luck, and we'll be able to get those rest of world orders out. For this week, to win a volume of Modern Huntsman of your choosing, simply comment in one of the posts when this show goes out. Tell me what your favorite episode has been so far. On Twitter and Instagram, find the show at Byron J. Pace, and on Facebook, podcast into the wilderness or you can send an email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com sometimes i forget to mention but if you're a podcast listener you can get 15 percent off any modern huntsman products on our shop visit thepacebrothers.com and use the promo code 
into the wilderness. Last thing before we jump into the show, a massive shout out, of course, to our top tier patrons, which include this week Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the team at South Esh Stalking, Josh Starling, Sean Rowan, James Alban Corbin, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. If you want to help support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers and you can have a look at the various support tiers. There is some pretty cool swag that we also send out when you sign up. So with all of that said, I welcome Catherine Semso to the podcast. Catherine, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. Where, where are you uh, calling in from? What part of the world? Well, today I'm in Washington, D.C., uh, which is uh, where, where I consider to be home. We're going we're gonna to dive into a lot of topics today. Um, probably the most pertinent to the current conversation is wildlife trade and its role with, within the current pandemic and what the future looks like for the wildlife trade. But I think as a way of building a framework for the discussion, I'd be interested to know a little bit about your background and how you got uh, to the position that you're in now working with, the, with PERC, the Property and Environment Research Center. Because am I... Am I right in thinking you're actually an economist? Uh, I am actually not an economist. You're not? Uh, my background, I'm not. No, my background is principally in policy. Um, you know, my career began um, a long, long time ago uh, in the New York City office of McKinsey and & Company. And from there, I moved uh, to work in policy in Washington, D.C. for a large U.S. non-governmental organization. And, and what I did with them was, was work primarily with our Department of Defense uh, to troubleshoot environmental problems uh, as they impacted national security, particularly the training and readiness uh, of U.S. troops. And, and I did that for over a decade and, and then went off and formed my own consultancy. And as a consultant, um, one of my primary clients was another NGO that provided support services to counter poaching programs in Africa. And it was from that work that I eventually came to um, uh, become a researcher with the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, as well as the African Wildlife Economy Institute at Stellenbosch University in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Uh, okay, yes. I think what I was getting mixed up with, is I, I know that there's a lot of uh, economic drivers behind the conversations being had within PARC. Um, so I, maybe that's why I thought that you had a background in economics. But I can see how what the, the work that you've been involved in is a perfect fit within the organization that you're, you're now primarily working with. Tell me a little bit about them and their history, because I've been aware of them for a little while, but I would imagine quite a lot of listeners don't even know that they exist, unless maybe you live in Bozeman, Montana. Even though, and leave, even though the conversations that you have, uh, you and your team and what you publish, is, is so much wider than what's happening in North America. Absolutely. So PERC is the home of free market environmentalism. Uh, what PERC does is research ways that markets and property rights can be leveraged to solve environmental challenges. And the organization was founded in 1980 uh, by a group of outdoor-oriented economists. So you're, you're right when you uh, hone in on the, the economic focus of PERC. Um, but it's grown much larger um, than just, you know, traditional economics, you know, in the 40 years that it's been in existence. Um, we have research fellows who are, are experts in law, 
Um, we have research fellows who are experts in policy, as well as research fellows who are experts in economics. And we each, you know, research, um, you know, within our lane, you know, shall you say, shall we say, um, you know, how can property rights and and markets be leveraged to solve environmental problems, be it wildlife trafficking, deforestation, water scarcity, um, you know, uh, how to fund um, national park maintenance. Um, there's a whole host of issues that we currently have on our plate that uh, our various research fellows are looking at. It's uh, it's interesting because my background is actually in economics. I worked in risk analytics in the city for some time before I moved into what I'm doing now, although I probably have largely forgotten most of it. But I do pick up things from time to time. I was reading an interesting paper not that long ago. Uh, written by two gents whose names I forget, but I'll put them in the notes for the show. And they wrote a, a paper on the property rights in Kenya just around the time that they banned hunting there. And um, when they were writing that, it was it was it was quite a new concept at the time, tying the role of conservation to uh, the the benefit that you get by having very defined property rights of land. We're going to get into that much more with it, with our conversation, particularly in, in conservation in Africa. But one thing that sprung to mind when I was reading this um, on the website was in North America in particular, you have vast swathes of land which are, are publicly owned. And so the idea of property rights there are, are not on the individual, but a collective group or the government in trust for the people. So how do you rationalize that as a property right? Because that's something I've never quite got to grips with. Well, I think one thing that's important to to consider about the United States is while it is true that we have uh, vast swaths of, of public land, um, th those lands are really confined to the Western states. Um, and, and the Eastern portion of the country is dominated by by private land. Uh, in fact, about sixty percent of the United States is in private ownership, and these private lands are are critical to, to conservation in the United States. They provide more than half of the habitat for the species that are listed under our Endangered Species Act. Um, they protect key wetlands. Um, they protect migratory corridors. For, for big game animals. You know, one thing that we're looking at now is that we've got these tremendous um, big game migrations that occur in the Western states. And, and the summer range of, of these mule deer, these elk, uh, this other wildlife is typically found on the public estate that, that, you, that you mentioned. Um, but the winter range and, and the migratory range, the transitional range, uh, is, is very often found on the private lands that are interspersed in between the public lands. So, you know, if we're going to have healthy public lands, we also need to have healthy private lands. And property rights are key uh, to ensuring the health of those private lands because you care for what you own. You know, as the, the old cliche goes, no one ever washes a rental car. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's the same when it comes to land ownership. So if you can if you can strengthen the, the property rights that landowners have, uh, you can find ways to give them an incentive to to practice conservation, you know, on their holdings, um, and that can have you know wide scale benefits for both the landowner and the general public. Mm, it it's uh, there was a, 
a quote on the website, which I, I pulled actually for this conversation with you, which is from uh, a hero of mine, Aldo Leopold, a hero of many people's, and especially in conservation, uh, where he stated that conservation will ultimately boil down to rewarding private landowners who conserve the public interest, which I think is a beautifully concise way of putting it. Yeah, Leopold w- w- was quite the poet, and yeah, Leopold <laughs> was was definitely influenced by the private landowner. You know, primarily, um, you know, having his work, uh, you know, in the Midwest in Sand County. Uh, yeah, he he understood the value of the farmer, the rancher, the woodlot owner in helping the country to deliver conservation. But you know, what Perk looks at is, well, what are the incentives to do that? Um, how do you, you know, make it attractive and, you know, make wildlife, make wildlands, make, you know, clean water and economic asset for the landowner so that they don't have an incentive to, to degrade the resource, um, you know, as opposed to a liability, you know, which can come sometimes with heavy handed regulation and, and, and other approaches that, that are sometimes advocated for. I mean, that is true around the world where we have where there there's a very simple logic that money and markets drive land use and how we use resources and if the the optimum land use in terms of economic return isn't one that favors conservation then that is probably the land use that will be borne out in the long run. How can you give me a couple, uh, maybe a, an example? Well, let's stick with North America for now, and then we're going to move on to um, um, Africa and, and trade and take what you're telling us about uh, about North America into Africa. Um, but how incentives can be put in place to make sure that the sort of the public good of land and land use comes to the fore rather than just maximizing economic return for the private landowner? I think one place, you know, where we see illustrated what, what, what you're, you know, discussing is right in Perk's backyard. Um, just to the south of us, uh, there's a place that's commonly known as the Paradise Valley. And, oh, and I know this it. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a valley that is just to the north uh, of Yellowstone National Park. Beautiful it's, place. Incredibly beautiful place. It's bordered on one side by the Gallatin Mountain Range, on the other side by the Absorcas Mountains, um, and and through the valley flows the Yellowstone River. And this valley is is dominated by private lands. Um, the mountainous areas, you know, tend to be owned by the federal government, but that valley bottom uh, is is dominated by by private lands. And it's this valley that the northern Yellowstone elk herd, which is one of the largest elk herds you know, in, in our part of the world, uh, comes out of in the winter. Um, they spend the summer in the highlands of Yellowstone National Park. If, you, if you've ever been to Mammoth Hot Springs, these are the elk that you see. Um, and then as the you know, temperatures start dropping, they start moving into the Paradise Valley. And, and that's, you know, for a number of reasons, but um, a, a big reason is one that's their historic migratory and winter range, but two that the landowners there, uh, you know, provide pretty good forage and pretty good cover and pretty good habitat for these animals. But the presence of these animals, you know, creates a cost for the landowners. Um, you know, every um, 
you know, acre of forage that, that these elk consume is, is less forage for their cattle. Um, the elk, you know, destroy fences, you know, as they move across the landscape. Um, perhaps even more importantly, they bring with them the risk of a disease called brucellosis, uh, which if elk do transmit it to cattle, can cause cattle to, to abort, um, which also obviously has, you know, financial costs for landowners. So, you know, one thing that we're looking at is how do we reduce or, or offset these, these costs that the, the elk uh, impose on landowners? Because, you know, particularly with these, you know, smallholder ranchers, um, you know, you're working on such a, a narrow margin. Um, every little bit, you know, can help. And the, the more we can turn these elk into an economic asset, or at least make them economically neutral for the landowners, the less likelihood that these landowners are going to go out of business. Uh, because what we've seen happen across the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is that when ranchers go out of business, more often than not, uh, those ranch lands are subdivided. Uh, turned into smaller residential developments, and the habitat for the, those elk are lost. So, you know, we're looking at everything from how do we leverage index insurance to offset the risk of, of disease transmission, um, you know, with regard to brucellosis, uh, to how do we create access to new markets, to premium markets, um, to increase the amount of, of cash that's going into a landowner's park pocket, um, and, and, you know, what are some of the other options that are out there uh, to make it attractive to the landowner to to want to have elk on their property uh, because they're getting some type of premium payment uh, or, or some other mechanism? And that's research that's still in progress, but it's something that we're going to be pursuing for the next several years. Yeah, it, uh, it, it springs, what springs to mind when you are telling me that story is uh, leopards in Africa, which generally speaking, are fairly heavily illegally persecuted by farmers because in many instances, especially where hunting has been closed down, uh, there is zero incentive to have a leopard on your farm. They are they are simply, they are, they are a negative asset <laughs> to, to put a phrase around it because they're doing nothing but take from you. Where hunting has been in place, there is a, a tolerance to accepting leopards, uh, leopards living within the, the farm because they know at some point by... Uh, selling the the right to an outfit, an external outfitter to hunt one or two leopards throughout the season or whatever the permit system might be in that area, they're able to recoup economic loss, um, which is facilitated by leopards eating their cattle or sheep or livestock or whatever, uh, and maybe even be able to make some money out of it. So hunting has been used in North America in, in similar ways to, to compensate. I suppose when it comes to elk, that must be something that's also being looked at. It's been looked at by by some states, you know. So in the United States, um, wildlife is is managed by each respective state. So we've essentially got fifty different wildlife management structures uh, across our country. Some states have been very progressive in terms of incentivizing um, habitat conservation and land stewardship, wildlife stewardship on private lands by allowing landowners to tap into you know, the large market that does exist um, for elk hunting in this country. Uh, other states are still catching up you know, with, with what states like Colorado and New Mexico have done with allowing transferable tags and, and um, 
you know, similar tools to take place. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's a conversation that, that, that needs to, um, to occur between the hunting community and the landowner community. Because one thing that we've found in our research um, with landowners is while many of them do like the idea of, of having, say, transferable tags, um, you know, it is a popular idea. There's also a cost that can come with that, too, because once you start allowing people onto your property, then you have to manage that access. And that's fewer hours, you know, in the day that you have to tend to your core business of, of raising cattle. So there's a balance that, that, that needs to be struck there. Um, allowing hunting is, is a great idea. Um, and, and it's one that I'd love to see, um, you know, more states adopt, you know, through transferable tags. But, um, the considerations that the landowners have in terms of like, okay, well, now I'm going to, to allow people onto my land. What's that going to cost me? Um, have to be taken into consideration as well. And we're still sussing out. You know, what are the details of, of that type of exchange? Just to touch back on public lands for a moment before we go and talk about um, wildlife trade. I've, I'm aware from spending a bit of time in the States the last couple of years and also had conversations with, with friends involved in various departments in different states that the public lands, largely speaking, across the board are heavily underfunded is there what what are the current conversations being had about how to fill that deficit that's there? I know the one mechanism that I am well aware of is uh, comes through taxes on sporting goods for for hunting and fishing, and those taxes going in to help fund conservation efforts in different states, along with the the purchase of tags across uh, over the counter for various different huntable species. I know that there were conversations in some states about this idea that other recreational users should. Uh, like um, pay to play, if, even if you're hill walking or uh, mountain biking across the mountains. Do you know where that conversation has, has got to, or, or is it something that's still very much being being fleshed out? I can imagine it's the kind of thing that there would be um, equal support for, as well as resistance. That's that's a great question, and you know this is a conversation, um, you know, with regard to you know should we we tax outdoor equipment. Um, that's been going on for for twenty plus years. Um, so it's it's a conversation that's still in development. Um, for your listeners who aren't aware, you know, at at, at present, um, a lot of state wildlife agencies, in fact, all of our state wildlife agencies, are funded through a mechanism whereby an excise tax is paid on firearms, ammunition, archery equipment, uh, fishing tackle, um, and and other outdoor. Uh, equipment typically used by the sportsman's community. Um, you know, what we're talking about here, uh, and this is a conversation that's, you know, happening between manufacturers, retailers, conservation organizations, agencies, is should that excise tax model uh, be expanded to include backpacks, tents, uh, mountain bikes, kayaks, etc. And some states, you know, like Virginia, you know, have, have moved in that direction already on, on their own. And, and I think, you know, if I was going to look into my crystal ball, um, I think we're going to be having this conversation for, for some time to come. Um, because, uh, again, there's a, a balance that needs to be struck, and, and no one's quite sure where that balance is yet. Um, but I think it's a valuable conversation. We certainly need to diversify, 
you know, the funding that, that we're putting into conservation in this country. Um, other conversations that are happening is with regard to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which takes a portion of, of um, revenues the federal government gets from, from oil and gas exploration and puts them into to conservation. One thing that, you know, we think, you know, needs to happen is those funds can't just be used to acquire more public lands because the reality is that we can't take care of what we have already. So adding more acres to the ledger um, is something that has to be, you know, pursued with, with a great degree of care. What would be great is if, you know, we could use these LWCF funds to, to alleviate some of the maintenance backlogs that we have on our existing public lands. And that's something that, you know, we, we would certainly like to see. Um, and then, you know, I think something that the, the U.S. Um, is probably going to have to look at, you know, in, in the coming decades is, is something that, you know, Africa is already, um, you know, well-versed in, which is, is public-private partnerships. You know, how can NGOs, um, foundations, um, you know, and, and, and even commercial interests, you know, work with government uh, to deliver conservation on lands that are accessible by the public? Uh, now, what form that would take, you know, is, is still something that I think uh, the United States um, is discussing. Um, but, you know, I, I look at a 2016 report, you know, from Credit Suisse, which I think said there was an excess of $200 billion in potential conservation impact investment that was sitting on the sidelines. Um, and, you know, my immediate thought is like, well, how can the United States uh, tap into some of that impact investment, um, given the potential of, of both our public and private lands to provide water, to conserve carbon, um, to provide all of these conservation benefits that the people of the United States, but also the people of the world are seeking. Yeah, I, I, I find that very often my uh, friends or, or people that I meet when I'm in the States for the most part, especially if they're involved in the outdoor recreation community in some way, have a very negative view of private land ownership. I live in a country in the UK, but particularly in Scotland, where it's largely speaking private land ownership, but we have uh, free access to that land, not for extractive purposes. So hunting and fishing uh, for the most part, is still kept under private ownership, but it is accessible, like over the counter, in a very similar way to you would buy permits over the counter. But we have a, a sort of a the equivalent of a guide system here from most private estates. But if you want a mountain bike or kayak or hill walk or camp or most of or, or rock climb, most of the other outdoor activities that um, people want to partake in, you can do that across almost all private land here in Scotland. And the government does help incentivize private land owners to spend money with government um, help in ways that are in the public interest. So, for example, through regenerating and plantering um, native woodlands, for example. And I think that there, there is lessons to be learned on both sides of the water and, and from other parts of the world about how those those partnerships and incentives can be um, placed for the greater good. I, I completely agree. And in fact, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm endeavoring to do as, as part of my work is, you know, create a knowledge exchange between Americans and, and, and Africans in particular. But I, I also think the United States has a great deal to learn uh, from Europe 
uh, you know, with regard to conservation. You know, my, my own personal perspective is that a lot of our conservation systems and a lot of our conservation attitudes, um, you know, are, are really sort of echoes of a previous time. You know, when, when Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir and, and John James Audubon and Ernest Thomas Seton and, and Henry David Thoreau and all of these, these conservation icons were creating, um, you know, what, what has become the American conservation movement, uh, the United States was still largely unsettled. It was still, you know, a, a had frontier. It was still wild um, to, to a great extent. In the 21st century, the United States is settled. And I think that we're a lot closer these days to, you know, where people are in Scotland or in Scandinavia um, than we are necessarily to where uh, Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir stood uh, in, in relation to the degree of our relationship with the land. And, and for that purpose, I think that there's a lot of lessons that um, Americans can learn from the European experience about how to deliver conservation. And, and as you said, there's sort of this antipathy that is, you know, um, just under the surface, sometimes, you know, on the surface of American conservation, um, this antipathy to, to private lands. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you know, 60% of the United States is, is in private ownership. It provides absolutely critical habitat for um, endangered and threatened species, uh, as well as, you know, many, many game species. So, you know, we have to um, make private lands part of our, our conservation dialogue and, and, and part of our conservation system. And, and realize that private ownership does not equate to ecological degradation. And, and I think, you know, um, Britain and Europe, you know, are, are um, prime examples of that. You know, there's somewhat of a mythology that's, um, you know, uh, circulated in the United States that, you know, Britain and Europe are these ecological wastelands. Uh, because, <laughs> I know. I've yeah. faced this a few times in conversations. It's like, no, I think we have stuff to learn from you guys too over in the States and other parts of the world, but we do do some things which are good. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got, you know, wolves and bears, you know, um, you know, on con in continental Europe. Um, you know, there's a massive ecological um, you know, conservation campaign going on in Scotland, um, you know, that I've been following with regard to beaver and, you know, uh, other mm, species. Yeah, they're on my doorstep right here. Are they? Are they? Pretty um, much, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really cool creatures. I, I love I love watching them build. Um, it's, a, it's a very controversial, I mean, it's a very controversial subject, um, beavers, and one that I haven't actually done a, a podcast on entirely, and it really deserves it. Um, part of the controversy here is that the, the the established population of beavers were originally illegally introduced. Uh, they had a, a proper monitored program on the west coast with a very with a fairly small number of beavers, which wasn't particularly successful. Um, I don't think they actually bred, but the illegal reintroduction. And they're pretty sure that they know who did it. It's not. It's like this open secret. Um, this illegal reintroduction is the one that has been now uh, allowed to proliferate and has protective status. And there's, um, I, I think one of the issues with that in terms of Scotland is that they did that with not without really having uh, mitigation measures in place with a long-term view as to, okay, well, if we accept that this is good and there's lots of positive benefits from it, at what point 
can we take control measures to prevent it being negative in some instances um, and affecting other native wildlife that still exists and hasn't had to be reintroduced. Like, for example, I mean, one of the things that gets brought up is Atlantic salmon, which are struggling globally. Um, I mean, their populations have declined massively. And how will the damming of small tributaries, for example, affect their ability to spawn? Uh, it's it's a it's a complex web of considerations, and it's you know the the question of how do you find that balance between yep. you know the landowner, um, you know the fishing interests, the the people who you know want to see the the wetland benefits provided by the beavers, um, you know many of these challenges. Other countries have been there before. Other populations have been there before, and I think having a greater exchange you know, between conservationists around the world um, is, is really critical going forward. You know, it, there, there's a lot we can learn from each other. Um, you know, and similarly from, from, from Africa, you know, I mean, I, I look at, um, you know, programs like the ones being done by, by Africa parks, um, you know, in, in, in African national parks. And I look at the maintenance backlog in our national parks here in the United States. And I think like, well, what lessons are there here, you know, in terms of using public-private partnerships to to take over, um, you know, the management of struggling assets and turn them around uh, so that the, the, the public can benefit from that? Maybe if we turn our attention to wildlife trade, because I know that that will take us into a conversation um, in, in Africa in particular, but... If we talk about wildlife trade with the current issues that we're facing around the world with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and the conversations have been, well, to stop this happening again, we need to ban the trade of wildlife. This is the sort of the, the, the very basic and oversimplistic captions that have been floating ar- around the internet. I think it would be really useful if you could give listeners sort of an overview of what what is the global wildlife trade? Because when most people hear of that, they think of the illegal trade. That's the first thing that comes to mind. They think of the illegal trade and or they think of the trade for for trophy animals, trophy hunting. And the reason why they think of that is because it has been so topical, both in the UK and the United States, you know, for the last two to three years, or basically since Cecil Line. So what do we mean when we're talking about wildlife trade? And what is the connection with that and the conversations with um, COVID-19 and future pandemics? Yeah, so, you know, the wildlife trade, as, as you know, you allude to, is, is a massive, massive um, enterprise. You know, it ranges everything from, you know, the selling of, of hunted game meat uh, in, in marketplaces around the world. Um, you know, that can be the selling of game meat in, in places in Africa, places in Asia, yeah, but also it can it can be the selling of game meat, you know, at a butcher shop in Oxford or or you know some other, uh, you know, British or or European city. Um, you know, the selling of grouse, the selling of pheasants. Um, you know, it it can include um, the sale of of animals for the pet trade. Um, it can include the sale of animal skins to make drums, you know, or um, you know other uh, leather goods. Um, it can include, you know, the trophy hunting trade, um, you know, that you mentioned, and, and which I expect we'll talk about more about in a couple of minutes. And then, of course, there's the illicit trade um, in in commodities like elephant ivory, uh, rhino horn, um, 
you know, both live pangolin and pangolin scales. Um, so it's, it's a massive, you know, enterprise that spans, you know, the entire world and, and, and countless numbers of species. And it's, it's regulated, um, at least in the international sphere under the convention on international trade in endangered species. Um, but you know, that convention does not regulate trade, uh, within countries. Um, it only regulates trade between countries. Um, and of course, you know, the, the illicit trade, um, it doesn't regulate, you know, at, at all because it's an illicit trade and, and, and therefore not regulated by um, by treaty or any other type of legal mechanism. And you know, when when the the um, you know the COVID nineteen pandemic emerged, you know, the the initial narrative that, that came out of Wuhan, China, was that the outbreak had been traced to uh, a fresh food market in the city of Wuhan. And blame was initially placed on the sale of wildlife in in the market. And my understanding is that was a result of the fact that the cluster of cases that they identified in the market was was from the part of the market where wildlife was being sold. Um, but you know, since that initial announcement, you know, w- was made by the Chinese government, you know, more research on this disease has has occurred and you know what they found is a couple things uh one the person that they believe to be patient zero uh was actually um you know came down with the disease in november and and most importantly that person had no contact whatsoever with with the wuhan market um so you know it's hard to say that it emerged in the wuhan market i think what really happened was the market was an amplifier um, you know, there was one, um, one, you know, person who knows much more about infectious disease than I do, uh, who said, you know, the, the virus came into that market before it walked out of that market. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's been suspicion that the, the pangolin, um, which is illegal for consumption in China, but the scales, um, can be used for traditional Chinese medicine, uh, might have been, uh, you know, one of the um, might have been the animal from which the disease jumped into a human host, uh, but there's no sign that pangolin was sold uh, at the Wuhan market. So that further deepens the mystery. Um, you know, I could go on uh, about this at length. In fact, I just published a, a piece for uh, for Perk. You know, covering it. Um, yeah, I'll the, link. I'll link it in the. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, you know, but the short story is 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 we don't know at this point, um, you know, where this disease exactly emerged from, um, and and what if any links to wildlife trade might be. Um, that's still a big mystery. And given that you know the trade in wildlife provides food security, economic security, uh, and you know most importantly, uh, incentivizes the conservation of large areas of habitat which, you know, a growing chorus of experts are saying is, is necessary to do in order to prevent the next pandemic from spilling over uh, into, into humanity. Um, these calls for blanket bans on wildlife trade uh, seem to me to be um, a little bit um, misplaced. You know, it's a little bit like conducting brain surgery with, with, with a sledgehammer. Um, you know, what we really need to do is take a targeted and equitable approach 
to how we address you know the intersection of of wildlife trade and the risk of pandemic disease and, and focus on those species um, that are most likely to to transmit disease and focus a lot less on things like the importation of hunting trophies um, since there it, has yeah, been... it takes up a lot it takes up a lot of time <laughs> as a, it takes up a lot of political time it takes up a lot of space uh, and it really is not it shouldn't be of the most major and um, persistent concern because it's quite simply not if you're worried about uh, the conservation of ecosystems and species. Exactly. You know, there, there's no documented cases of somebody getting sick because of a legally imported hunting trophy. So why legislators are, are discussing, you know, banning those imports in the name of public health, like you said, it, it takes up a lot of time that would be better spent on focusing on what the real threats are. Um, in fact, I just testified last week in the California Senate um, on, on a bill that would would ban hunting trophies in the name of public health. And it's just, it's in not California. the right, in California, um, you know, it's just not the right course to go, go down, you know, especially when we consider again that, you know, hunting in Africa is conserving a, a massive, massive uh, amount of habitat. Um, and it's doing it in a way that's not dependent on foreign aid or, or donor funding. Um, you know, for, for scale, we're talking about an area, you know, more than two times the size of the U.S. national park system. So if the experts are saying, you know, we need to conserve habitat in order to prevent viral spillover, it seems like we want to be amplifying the impacts of the trophy hunting industry, not making it more difficult for them to operate by imposing um, frivolous import bans. I, I want to unpack a couple of things that you've just talked about um, with regard to, to poverty and uh in using um, wildlife as a way of stopping people interacting with wildlife in a way by the, the sort of sprawl through wild areas. Um, but just to pick up on what happened, just for people who are not aware, what is it that just happened in, in California? And what's been the outcome of that? Sure. So um, the, the California Senate, had, had, or I should say the California legislature, had previously passed legislation, the iconic African um, Species Protection Act. And, and what this bill you know, would do is ban the import and possession of some pretty common African hunting trophies, zebra, elephant, um, a, a number of other species. And the, the legislation had passed the California legislature, and it was vetoed by California's governor at the time. Um, for a, a number of reasons, you know, primarily relating to the relationship between state law and federal law. Um, you know, my understanding is that the governor felt that the state law conflicted with federal law and therefore would be ruled, you know, unconstitutional. So why waste state resources on adopting laws that will fail in the courts anyway? Um, but, you know, with the, the COVID-19 outbreak, um, this legislation has come back up for consideration with proponents saying that it's necessary in order to safeguard public health. But, you know, again, we've never seen, um, you know, legally imported processed shoulder mounts of, of, you know, hunting trophies be a source of disease in the United States. So it's, it's a bit of a frivolous and, and somewhat disingenuous exercise um, to be focusing on hunting trophies as opposed to, you know, species 
that might present, you know, a legitimate public health risk uh, to Americans and people around the world. So has my my understanding of uh, the legislative process in North America uh, is not particularly up to scratch. So is there another phase after this or is what stops that actually being passed now? Right. So, um, so I had testified in a committee hearing, um, the, the Committee on Natural Resources and Water, and the committee voted to adopt the legislation and, and move it on to the, the full Senate for consideration. Um, we'll see if the full Senate you know, decides to take up the bill. Um, that, that seems to be an unknown at this point. I, I know that a number of legislators in California have expressed similar reservations that you know the state is getting out ahead of the federal government on this and you know particularly g- given the the you know massive drain that the pandemic has had on California's budget you know do they really want to be adopting legislation that they're going to have to defend in court knowing that they'll likely lose just going back to the this conversation about a global ban on wildlife trade why is it the case that this would particularly affect uh, those already facing some of the gravest poverty in the world? Because it, it seems like uh, the, this particular aspect of it has just been washed over in the conversation to, to ban wildlife trade. It's almost a very sort of privileged position to be able to take to suggest that uh, this is possible and, and it will only have positive consequences. Right. Well, you know, if, if, if we look at, you know, African conservation systems, um, you know, let's just use Zimbabwe and the campfire areas as a case study. Um, you know, you, hunting creates economic incentives for, for rural people to, to conserve habitat. And, and we know that this habitat conservation is important because previous disease outbreaks, um, Ebola, loss of fever, other diseases were linked to the intrusion into wildlands by logging and other operations. Um, so, you know, in, in the campfire areas in, in Zimbabwe, and again, I'm just using this as, as an example, um, the communities receive um, uh, revenue from, from the hunting outfitters that they lease their land to, um, you know, so that the, the operators can, can bring in foreign clients to, to hunt the wildlife there. And, and I'm greatly simplifying things, um, you know, and we can dive in deeper if you want. Um, but by, you know, receiving that revenue, there's then incentive to conserve those wildlands and, and keep them intact, keep them wild, minimize the types of large-scale intrusions that logging or agriculture um, can bring bring into it. And, you know, thereby, you know, decrease the risk of viral spillover. But I think what's even more important is that because of this revenue sharing, uh, people now have access to to a cash economy that they might not otherwise. And what that cash is being used for, uh, in, in many cases, is the provision of things like basic sanitation, um, you know, access to clean water, which, as we all know, is critical to being able to do things like washing one's hands. Um, similarly, you know, we, we've seen, you know, these hunting revenues go into constructing rural medical clinics, which not only have the potential to uh, provide immediate medical care, to people in rural areas, but should a viral spillover occur, um, should an outbreak occur, that's going to be the world's early warning system that that something has happened, um, and that everyone else needs to, 
you know, get prepared for the possibility that um, the disease has not been contained. So, you know, if we take hunting, you know, out of the equation, you know, we're, we're going to one immediately disincentivize the conservation of an area of habitat that's about two plus times the size uh, of the U.S. national park system. Um, but we're also going to make it much more difficult to create the kind of infrastructure that we need in in rural areas, um, in these places where where viruses uh, are known to be hiding. Um, the kind of infrastructure that can serve as that early warning system, um, you know, for the world and, and also, you know, uh, improve public health and, and create um, uh, the means by which people can keep themselves healthy, um, you know, through things like basic sanitation. It's an interesting conversation uh, to be having in this context framed by uh, a global pandemic because, that is not the conclusion that most people would jump to where, when they think of conservation in Africa because this very notion of hunting um, or trophy hunting as it's normally referred to when, of any kind of hunting that goes on in Africa uh, is something – there's a gut feeling from the general public and certainly the way that it's portrayed in the media that – it's an aspect of society that should be shut down and, and, and finished kind of once and for all. And we should find a way to, uh, well, I was going to say we should find a way to replace it with some something else of, of equal or greater um, economic incentive. But actually, I think most of the conversations are not even really considering that. They just don't want to see the hunting anymore. And the argument always is that there, there are other alternatives and there are better ways that we can uh, conserve this land. What do you see as as the truth of that matter? Is hunting in the continent of Africa a vital tool for conservation, or could we quite easily find another mechanism for it? Uh, it it's, it's an important question. And you know what I would say is that the conservation benefits of hunting are are as well established as the reality that climate change um, is occurring. You know, I think at this point to say that trophy hunting provides no conservation value is very much akin to saying that climate change is, is not real. Um, the science is there. You know, the experience is there. The observations are there. Um, that is a settled question. Now, the moral question around trophy hunting is is unsettled. And, and it's not one that... Um, yeah, I, I'm going to, to jump into because it, it's not my place to impose my morality on, on someone else. Um, but what I, I find interesting about this dialogue is that, you know, people will say, well, there's alternatives out there. And, and photo tourism is the one that people point to, you know, more often than not. And, and there's some truth to that. You know, photo tourism does have a role to play. In delivering conservation in Africa, and the way I've always, you know, seen it is that photo tourism and trophy hunting are inseparable partners in delivering conservation in Africa. But photo tourism isn't going to work everywhere. You know, there's been studies that have shown that only about one third of Botswana's wildlife estate is economically viable. You know, for photo tourism. Um, there's been other studies coming out of Namibia showing that if you removed trophy hunting uh, from the communal conservancies 
and relied strictly on photo tourism, the overwhelming majority of those conservancies would no longer be economically viable and therefore would become become at increased risk for development. So photo tourism and, and trophy hunting are not interchangeable, which is, is why I you know, always say that they're inseparable partners in, in delivering conservation in Africa. Now, the reason that they're not interchangeable is that, you know, photo tourists tend to like a certain kind of area, by and large. Someplace that's, you know, closer to airports, um, has de- decent infrastructure, uh, you know, not a lot of, of, of bush, um, you know, so that it's actually easier to, to take photographs, um, and that are, you know, relatively safe and stable and secure. Um, you know, where trophy hunting is, is occurring are typically your more remote areas. They don't have the same types of density of wildlife that you might find in, say, a national park uh, where phototourism is occurring. And they certainly don't have the, the level of infrastructure um, that, you know, places like national parks have in terms of, you know, improved roads, hotels, what have you. And, you know, I don't think we want to have that level of infrastructure in a lot of these places, you know, because of the aforementioned viral spillover risk that that might bring, you know, with, with the large scale development. You know, I think what gets lost in this conversation too is that the needs are immediate. Um, you know, you need to be able to put cash on the table right now if you want to replace trophy hunting. And while there might be other alternatives out there in theory, uh, nobody stepped up to put cash on the table um, to execute on those alternatives. You know, I know in some of the recent hunting block auctions in Tanzania, some of the blocks went on sold. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the question is, well, why didn't people step up, you know, with cash to to execute on some of these alternatives that uh, campaigners, you know, and, and activists have been promoting? And I think there's a a great question. (laughs) Yeah, I I think there's a lot of reasons why they probably didn't. But I think one of them is that at least for the people who are looking at this from more of a market side, the the numbers just don't work, right? It's 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 not something that you're going to be able to break even on or or generate a return on. Um, So, you know, I I I appreciate that some people have a moral problem with, with, with trophy hunting. But, you know, my own personal thoughts are, well, what's what's the greater moral liability? Um, You know, we know that where lion hunting ends, sometimes we see a hundred lions killed as opposed to one or two. Um, You know, and if our goal is conservation, which happens at the population level, not at the individual level, um, this is something that um, has provided immense value. Uh, to the African continent, to African wildlife, to African people. And um, alternatives might be out there, but they have yet to prove their viability in the way that trophy hunting has. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're echoing a lot. I, I had a conversation with Amy Dickman uh, two, three weeks ago. It's a podcast that isn't out just yet um, as I sit and record this with you. And, and you're echoing a lot of what she was saying with, with the current state of what's happening in Tanzania with blocks going unsold. And she was saying that the scientists on the ground there are already seeing the negative effects in these what, what, what were pre- previous um, concession blocks with deforestation and uh, increased poaching because 
the local communities around these areas now have no other way um, to get by in their day than to use the resources that are on their doorstep because there there is no other mechanism uh, for them. And they're a long way from all the towns and cities and any kind of government help that might be available if it's indeed available at all. Um, so yeah, re replacing it with something which... Uh, really works for the people who live there is so important. And this kind of brings me to another question and criticism that gets flagged up a lot, is that the uh, hunting outfits and concessions that exist throughout, throughout the continent, do they really benefit local people? And uh, I mean, it's not, uh, it would be very obvious if you were to line up all of the well, the vast majority, I would imagine, um, of uh, concession holders and, and private landowners, and they would largely be white individuals, not indigenous population. So how does that interaction work uh, in terms of real benefits to the people on the ground there? Right. And I think that, that that's a key question going forward. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right, you know, about the the, the makeup of the backgrounds, you know, within the industry. But I also see that this is an industry that's changing. Um, you know, more and more black Africans, um, are participating in this industry, you know, as professional hunters and, and uh, as operators. You know, I, I've, I've met some of them. Yeah, um, I have as well. Yeah. And, and I think that's a positive development. And I think it's something that, you know, should certainly, you know, be encouraged. Um, and, and I think it will benefit the industry. Um, and, and the countries in which it's operating uh, immensely. Um, you know, in terms of the community benefits that are provided, I, I think that, you know, it's, while, while there are challenges, there's always going to be challenges. Um, no system is, is completely perfect. Um, and, you know, in, in many places, you know, despite the existence of those challenges, you know, you're going to find that, that the, most of the communities would still rather have the income that's coming from trophy hunting than, you know, nothing at all, um, you know, has made their, their lives better. You know, going back to the campfire areas in, in Zimbabwe, I think it was a US very effective. Um, it, it was a very effective system, the campfire model. It often gets held up as uh, one of the great examples. Yeah. And, and I think I, I think this was, you know, USAID data that, that I'm citing, but I might be mistaken about that. I think they found that, you know, household incomes increased 25%, um, you know, because of the presence of, of trophy hunting in the communal areas. And, and I think we have to look at the second and third order effects, you know, as, as well, you know, we were talking about Tanzania and, and how the fact that um, hunting blocks have gone unsold is, is leading to those lands being cleared. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that last year, the World Bank warned Tanzania that the ecological degradation that it was was witnessing um, in those hunting blocks, but but beyond, you know, threatened the country's long-term potential for economic development, and and that gets us back to to the disease question, you know, that there is a, a clear and compelling link between poverty and disease, um, and and if we're undermining, you know, the ability of, of countries to lift themselves out of poverty. Um, we're just making it much easier for the next pandemic uh, to emerge. So we really need to be engaging, you know, with, with every tool that we can, um, you know, in the conservation realm to, to lift people out of poverty um, 
you know, at, at any degree possible. And, and I think it's important to know like why those hunting blocks have have gone unsold and 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 US regulations um have have been a big factor in in the reason that those hunting blocks were left vacant. Um in 2014 the US imposed a moratorium on the importation of elephant trophies from Tanzania. Um similarly Endangered Species Act restrictions have limited the ability to to import lions um from Tanzania into the United States. And this is problematic because, you know, elephant and lion hunts subsidized uh, a lot of the hunting operations in Tanzania. And, and once you removed them from the equation, um, those operations quickly became economically unviable. Um, so there's no reason to hold on to hunting blocks and to continue to, to steward that habitat and put anti-poaching resources on the ground, um, you know, if, if you're not going to be making money um, in your enterprise. And, you know, as we said a few minutes ago, no one's stepping up and, and putting cash on the table um, with any other alternative. So those immediate needs are going to be met and those immediate needs are going to be met by clearing that land. Yeah, it's it's a, a strange paradox because here we have, if we're looking at Tanzania as, as an example, here we have a country which I think in Africa has one of the highest densities of lions um, on the continent. It is a, a democratic country, uh, um, as far as I can tell. In fact, you know, fairly stable by comparison to um, some other African countries which have had um, issues in recent years and, and historically over decades. And they, the government there makes the decision that they want to lease these vast areas as, as hunting concessions where um, people can bid for them and the money goes to government, which then is used to run the country. And yet we have a situation here where they are basically being curtailed to do what they want to do with their land by external legislation. That's exactly right. You know, the uh, the International Fund for Animal Welfare has reported that the United States makes up about 70% uh, of the global trophy hunting market. So that makes, you know, the United States, you know, incredibly important, um, you know, within that industry. Uh, and being able to access the U.S. market is really key, um, you know, some might argue essential um, for, you know, these operations to survive. So legislation and regulation in the United States, you know, has a, um, you know, sends a shockwave across the Atlantic and across the African continent um, in terms of its ability to influence land use in, in African nations, um, particularly when you start, you know, getting at those keystone um, components, you know, of the industry that is subsidizing their ability to to do what they do in terms of habitat stewardship and and anti poaching. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, and you know, one thing I've I've tried to personally do, you know, in my work is is to get policymakers here in the states to to view this issue not only in in terms of conservation and in terms of economic development. But also the relationships that we have, you know, with these African partner nations, um, because I, I'm not certain that there's has been until recently, you know, a full appreciation of of what it really means 
you know, to these countries when you take these regulatory and legislative steps and how that can impact the relationship between our two countries. And that's not just true of North America. I mean, we're in the process of discussing uh, very similar legislation to uh, what what you've already imposed there. But it, it appears to me like how it comes across is inadvertent sanctions on these countries. I mean, that's essentially what they, you know, what the United States has done. It's what Britain's about to do and many other European countries are doing. And these sanctions on their ability to trade is, is are not based on trying to incentivize them to do a better job at protecting their species and ecosystems and overall conservation. Because if you look at uh, Botswana as an, an example, or Tanzania, when it, particularly when it comes to lions, but if you were to look at vast uh, areas that are you know, remaining fairly intact in terms of sort of wildlife uh, corridors and are not being developed, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant example of that. So these countries are doing exactly what we want them to do, but we're now trying to tell them that they can't continue doing it the way that they've done it but without providing a solution. I think that it's, you know, a perfect explanation of, of, of what we see happening. And it's interesting that you use the term sanctions. Um, that's one that I've used before, you know, um, myself, you know, I've, I've referred to some of them as de facto sanctions. And I think it's, it's an interesting framework at which to look at these things because, you know, sanctions are obviously a coercive tool that governments use in order to um, create pressure towards a, a certain kind of outcome. Mm, and yeah. it's not clear what outcome is, is being sought here, except stop doing this. We don't like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not based on science. That's for sure. No, it's not based on science and it's not saying, you know, stop doing this, do this instead. Um, no. It's, it's um, it, it's it's a very you know sticky um, situation in, in in many ways and and I think it's because the conversation is is being dominated you know by sort of this very surface um, understanding uh, of hunting in Africa and and what it actually involves and 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 what it actually provides um, and how it serves as a a very you know sustainable um, self-sustaining way for for African countries to achieve many of the goals that the United Kingdom, the European Union, and the United States, um, you know, share with their their African partner nations. Um, but we're stuck in this this very surface level conversation, and it's um, it's not necessarily a productive conversation as long as we stay, you know, within this this superficial um, sphere. Um, you know, one thing that that I've noticed people are always surprised by is, you know, when I tell them, it's not like people go over there, shoot an animal, cut off its head and leave the carcass to rot. Um, you know, those animals get eaten, you know, just as they're, you know, more often than not eaten in the United States and in the UK and, and, and Europe. Um, but I think for a lot of, you know, our fellow countrymen that they have trouble conceptualizing that people would eat elephant or eat giraffe or, you know, both taste very good. Number of other species, it, it, it does. You know, um, <laughs> you know what I always tell people is, you know, just like we eat elk and 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 deer, um, you know, that they eat the game that they have available to them. Um, but it's because of this, you know, perception, you know, that's that's been created um, that these animals are not food. Um, 
that I think, you know, people have a very, um, very uh, misinformed perception of what hunting in Africa actually entails. Uh, to, to finish up, I want to ask you about what the current pandemic has shown us about the fragility of conservation in Africa. But before we get to that, as a kind of close, I wanted to pick up on, and I asked this question based on an article which um, you wrote for Perk. I think the title was Zero-Sum Game for Wildlife, uh, and you were looking at this sort of protectionist model, um, particularly that they have in Kenya, and how it's been failing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because we see some of it in in pockets around uh, around Europe, and as parts of the, the conversation, um, particularly with, uh, with the phrase of rewilding here, which is this notion that we should really just leave it be. Uh, and this comes up quite a lot in po- podcast conversations that I have, where there are certain you know, parts of society that want to remove our sort of I- influence as humans on the landscape and believe that that is the best outcome. And I can very much understand where that thinking comes from. But my response always is that we have reshaped the landscape around the world so much now that it has actually become our responsibility to take a hands-on proactive approach to in order to achieve the best outcomes that we want. And, and part of that is actually trying to decide what, what are those outcomes that we really want. Um, so what is it that what is the zero-sum game for wildlife? Uh, and maybe it would be a good idea just to, to have a, a slight bit of background story as to what's actually happened in in Kenya, um, particularly with the, the migration corridors. Sure. You know, I think this this idea of leave it be is is an interesting one. Uh, I think it's very romantic as well. I, I, I struggle to see how in a world of, you know, billions and billions of people, um, which has already happened and is going to continue to happen uh, for the foreseeable future, um, we're going to, to, to just be able to to leave it be. Um, I also think there's the reality that that not only have we altered the landscape, we've been altering uh, the landscape for our entire history as a species. We've been shaping and reshaping landscapes um, for you know tens of thousands of years, and to you know pick some arbitrary point you know in the timeline and say we should keep it that way um, is something that I I sort of struggle with. Um, because, you know, there is hardly a place, you know, uh, in this world that has not been touched by human hands. I mean, even in the depths of the Amazon basin now, they're finding that there, you know, are signs that there was agriculture there um, a long, long time ago uh, before it reverted back to forest. So we've been shaping and reshaping landscapes, you know, for our entire history. And, And I think that the the really appropriate question we need to be looking at is how do we live in a way that's sustainable um, for ourselves, for our society, um, and for the creatures with which we share this planet, um, as opposed to going back to some arbitrary point on the timeline. Now, in Kenya, um, you know, it's captivated the imagination of of a lot of Western conservationists because in in 1977, they, they banned the consumptive use uh, of wildlife. And, you know, they did that for, for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and, and it's not for me to judge whether those reasons, you know, are, are, are good or bad. Um, but, you know, we, we do know what the impacts of that, what, 
were. And what we've seen happen since 1977 is the widespread, large-scale decline of many species of wildlife that are otherwise common in other parts of East Africa. Um, some species you know, have declined by, by as much as, as 60%. Um, some would say you know, the declines are even more severe than that. And these declines are occurring outside of the national parks, which form a relatively small percentage uh, of Kenya's um, land um, compared to the communal and private lands um, that are held in the country. Now, to help alleviate this, you know, the Kenyans recognize that they have this challenge. They've, of course, you know, developed the, the conservancy system, um, which is, you know, sort of a corporate structure that, that communities or individuals or, or others can engage in, whereby they can co-manage um, wildlife with the Kenya Wildlife Service. And this is definitely a step in the right direction um, to helping alleviate some of these, these wildlife declines. But you know where they they continue to see a face a challenge, at least as far as I see it, is their their options for for generating income from wildlife remain very very limited. Um, photo tourism, you know, is, is the dominant option um, where income can be generated from wildlife. And you know what I've seen in my research is that photo tourism is not necessarily competitive in every place with agriculture, be it livestock um, or crop agriculture. Um, it's not competitive on price. You know, you can go into a conservancy, yes, but the fact remains that you will make more money um, growing crops or, or raising cattle than you will um, bringing in photo tourists. And this has been uh, particularly acute down in the Serengeti Mara ecosystem, you know, which is home to the great migration, the, the massive movement of wildebeest, zebra, and, and gazelle that you know, a lot of people are familiar with from Discovery Channel and BBC and, and, and National Geographic and, and other nature programming. And this, this migration is beginning to collapse, uh, according to Kenyan researchers and, and researchers from elsewhere. And it's because the, the migratory pathways are being converted from um, open grassland to agriculture. And it's, again, because of the fact that phototourism and the wildlife conservation that it incentivizes um, isn't actually incentivizing it because it's not competitive on price. So, you know, we're faced with this situation where we have to figure out a way for Kenyan communities and Kenyan landowners to, to make more money than they do, um, you know, by keeping the land open instead of converting it to agriculture. And I think one thing that, you know, holds some promise that that's being investigated is, um, is carbon credits, you know, because you do have the, these wonderful grasslands, which, you know, can sequester carbon and bringing that into the mix in, along with phototourism may push us over that edge where uh, it makes more sense to leave the land out of agriculture and, and keep it open for wildlife. Um, than it does to convert it to to row crops or, or cattle pasture. So would this be, for people who are not familiar with how that works, is the basic principle you might have a, a company or business that is con contributing negatively in terms of their carbon output 
and they offset that by buying carbon credits in another country, which is offsetting it by having either planting forests or maintaining an ecosystem that is uh, already intact. And this this revenue stream of money for these these areas is what helps pay local people and the people who live there to keep it as it is. That, that's exactly how it works. And, you know, again, it's an imperfect system. You know, there's challenges in the system, but there's challenges in every system. Um, you know, some of the challenges that need to be addressed are, are like really fundamental things. So like getting this up to scale will re- require increasing the transaction capacity of, of African banks, you know, to handle these kinds of exchanges. But I, I think that's, you know, something that can have second and third order effects that will benefit African economies uh, on a wider scale, you know, beyond the, the conservation impacts. And it's things that, uh, that are worth looking at. But, you know, it also requires that conservationists be a little bit more business-minded than they have in the past. What it really boils down to is something which I don't think is considered anywhere near enough when we talk about conservation, because most of those discussions evolve around research that's being done. It's ecologists and biologists on the ground, and uh, particularly in Africa, there's very often also conversations about uh, anti-poaching measures. But what this really boils down to is the economics, because if the economics incentivizes uh, a system where we're getting the outcomes uh, outcomes that society as a, as a global entity want, then we're going to have uh, positive conservation for ecosystems and uh, local communities and uh, the wildlife that that lives and interacts within them. If the economics leans to a side where there is a a different alternative, that in the long run, that's the route that it will take, whether that be agriculture or in very rural communities with very little other option or or place to turn to, they turn to to poaching because very often there isn't another choice. I I think you're you're absolutely right. You know, there's a tendency... Um, among conservationists to be, to be a bit myopic. Um, you know, a lot of the conversations that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm party to, quite frankly, you know, people look at conservation as if it occurs in a vacuum, um, as opposed to is something that's pursued within the context of a larger society that has competing goals, competing needs. And, um, you know, I, I think if, if we're going to be successful in the 21st century, it's not just a question of how do we reduce poaching or how do we conserve habitat. Um, it, it's also a question of how do we provide for, for what people need um, using conservation as the means to, to de- deliver that um, and thereby, you know, reducing that competition um, between needs. And, you know, the, the ability of trophy hunting, for example, to conserve large swaths of habitat, which we know is needed to prevent the risk of viral spillover and pandemic disease, you know, is, is, is one example of that. But, you know, there's, there's many, many others that I'm sure, you know, we, we could hash out. Um, but, you know, I think we, we need to start moving away from conservation as a cause, um, you know, a political cause, a social cause. And instead, start looking at it as as a tool um, for how we're going to to manage our societies and, and live sustainably on this planet. Yeah, I think it also 
um, has a very real place in alleviating a lot of the uh, social inequities that exist around the world as well. And I, and I don't think that's discussed enough. When we look at conservation, particularly from the Western world, it is always about um, preserving these what we view as pristine wildernesses and the uh, the wildlife within them. But really, conservation is a story about the interaction between people and, and wildlife and the land that they that they share. Which brings us back to Leopold and his whole discussion of, of having <laughs> does, a land yeah. ethic. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, what, what is our relationship with the landscape? What is our relationship with this planet? And, and what is our relationship with each other and, and the creatures with which we share this planet? Now, just as a way of uh, wrapping this up, because I don't want to keep you much longer, um, but I, I think this is, this is a perfect ending to an amazing conversation. One of the th- and, and I brought this up on a couple of podcasts. I've I posed this question to to a few people recently. The current pandemic has really highlighted the fragility of our funding mechanisms in conversation. Now, some in, in conser- conservation rather, and, and some of this you've kind of covered already by by looking at this uh, the potential of using carbon credits to protect landscapes. What do you think the situation around the world with this almost immediate halt of travel, which for countries particularly like, oh, sorry, let me rephrase that, for continents particularly like like Africa, which rely so heavily on tourism, be that photographic or hunting tourism, to fund their conservation models, almost overnight that money has dried up. What do we need to put in place going forward to make sure that if this ever happens again, uh, that they can ride that wave until people can travel again? It it seems to me that what it has highlighted is just how fragile uh, the, the, the system is because most of that funding was essentially coming from a single source. It was coming from the ability of people to travel from one side of the planet to the other. No, no, absolutely. And, 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 you know, that fragility has been laid out, I think, for, for everyone to see. And, and it's not just in Africa, it's in, in the United States as well. You know, I mean, I look at Montana and, um, you know, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks um, in the U.S. gets about uh, twice as much revenue from the sale of out-of-state hunting licenses than it does in-state hunting licenses. And that's a function of, you know, everything from low population density um, in Montana itself. Um you know, to, to some other factors. But, you know, even in the U.S., agencies are looking at budgetary shortfalls um, because people are not able to travel. Um, you know, plus with the, the economic downturn that's accompanied the pandemic, uh, discretionary income has been reduced. So maybe that safari to Africa is just not on the, um, you know, it's definitely not on, on the books for this year, but it might not be on the books for next year either. And, and we've been here before, you know, during the one of the more recent Ebola outbreaks, um, you know, even though the, the disease was thousands of miles away in, in, in West Africa, um, safari operators in Kenya and Tanzania saw significant declines in bookings. Um, you That's know, because of, people think Africa's a, a country and not a continent, which was, which was a faux pas on my behalf when I asked you that question. Exactly. I mean, it, it's, it, but that is the perception. Um, you know, it's a country, uh, not a continent. And, you know, thanks to a, a really poor map projection, people think it's, it's much smaller <laughs> than it actually is. Yeah. Um, 
but you know that that fragility is there and and it is reliant on on one one source tourism be that photo tourism or hunting tourism and and i think you know what needs to be um you know at, at the top of the list for those of us who who care about africa is is thinking through like what are the other revenue streams that we can tap into to to fund conservation um but i think in order to do that too we we, we need to get back to that question of what are the, con- the the benefits that conservation provides you know conservation has to be more about um you know privileged white uh westerners coming to some place to have an experience in nature um you know it's it's got to ha- have have more meaning than that. Um, it's got to be providing goods and services and be supporting economic growth and development. Um, and if we start thinking about it in those terms, I think, you know, we'll, we'll quickly start to realize what are some of the other funding sources, you know, that can come to the table. Now, we talked about carbon credits as being one potential one. Um, another thing that, you know, I, I think is is really cool that, that's going on are, are the water funds that have sprung up around Nairobi and in, in, in Cape Town, um, whereby companies that are, you know, heavily dependent on on water resources, you know, think Coca Cola, um, are investing money in habitat restoration, um, in in the watersheds that they're dependent on, um, because that habitat restoration and conservation um, will help to ensure the water supply that they need to conduct business, and and I think that that's you know how we need to start thinking about conservation more and more. It's not that we abandon sort of the legacy viewpoints. It, it, it's a both and, not, not an either or. Um, but I think we know we, we need to do this quickly. And, and there's probably going to need be a need for some bridge funding because, you know, operators, um, be they photo tourism or, or hunting, are looking at a lost season uh, this year. Um, and and whether or not they'll be able to 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 weather that, you know, through 2021 um, r- remains to be seen. Um, and 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 there's a lot on the table. You know, I mean, I look just at South Africa, where, you know, you've got a wildlife estate of 50 million acres uh, of private lands, you know, which is a pretty significant chunk of land um, that's completely dependent on hunting revenue uh, for you know, for its, its sustainment. And these are former cattle ranches that, um, you know, had been, been restored to wildlife habitat. And if wildlife habitat is, is no longer something that can produce income for these landowners, uh, they're probably going to turn to something else, you know, to produce that income. And my guess is that because of, um, the need to, to, to meet, um, you know, immediate, um, necessities, um, what they turn to won't necessarily be something that uh, will make it easy to get us back to where we were just you know six months ago. Yeah, there is a there is a lot to think on there. And <laughs> this is I think this com- conversation has probably made people ask themselves more questions than it's than it's answered. But it certainly has answered a lot of questions as well. Uh, I, I certainly think there needs to be a reevaluation about what we as a global society view as progress. Uh, I. 
I think most countries view progress as increasing GDP as <laughs> a bottom line, and that's it. And and, and that can't be the be all and end all. But uh, you know, I, I think in many cases it is is driving uh, economic markets. But deciding what the outcomes that we want and and what we wish to reward as a society, I think will will define how well we. Uh, manage to fund conservation going forward. But Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a, a brilliant conversation. Where can people read more? Because I know that you and Perk, uh, you put out a lot of content, a lot of really good content. Where can people go and read up and, and follow up on some of the conversation that we've had today? People can can find Perk at www.perc.org. So that's perk.org. And at perk.org, you'll find, um, you know, the bulk of our research that's been conducted by myself and my colleagues on a whole range of topics, you know, not just wildlife, um, but also land use, water, fisheries. Uh, you know, we've got a pretty deep bench uh, of researchers and, um, you know, we, we've done what, what I like to believe is some pretty exciting work over the years about how markets and property rights can be leveraged to, to deliver uh, conservation. So. And uh, you're on Twitter as well? Because I know you share a lot of stuff. I'm on Twitter as well at, at Catherine Semser. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to uh, speaking with you again at some point. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next week when we will take another walk into the wilderness.